0: Good morning. Once again, I'd like to greet you if you're a visitor uh, to Crossing Community Church. I'm Greg, and I hope that you'll join me as we go through one of the most important passages of Scripture, Paul's letter to the church at Rome. We call it the Book of Romans. So if you have a Bible, we have some uh, ground to cover. If you have a Bible, please turn to Romans chapter 1. Don't let this scare you here because this is mostly large print Scripture I'm trying to read here. And my lovely wife is going to help me, I think. Let's see here. Here we go. Uh, Join me as I read the the first portion of chapter 1, and then we'll pray. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, a called apostle, set apart unto the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures, concerning his son, born of the seed of David, according to the flesh. The one declared the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, being raised from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we receive grace and apostleship unto obedience of faith among all the nations for his name's sake, in whom you are also called, of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ concerning all of you that your faith is proclaimed in all the world the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve in my spirit in the gospel of his Son, as unceasingly I am making mention of you always in my prayers, making requests, if perhaps now I should succeed in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you, in order that I might impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be strengthened, that you, that is, that I should be encouraged with you, among you, through your faith in one another, and also me, for I do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, that many times I planned to come to you and was prevented thus far in order to have some fruit also among you, just as also in the rest of the nations, both the Greeks and barbarians, both to wise and to foolish I am debtor. So for my part, I am ready to preach the gospel also to you, the ones in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek. For in it, a God kind of righteousness is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, but the just shall live by faith. Uh, Join me in prayer. Lord, we do bring these words uh, from uh, from you through the Apostle Paul uh, to the church at Rome, to us today. I pray that today I would get out of the way and that people would see you, they would see the teaching of truth, of the good news of Jesus from the word of God. We would give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So, that's the first part, but um, I think it would uh, be good to give a little biographical sketch, a short one, of the man who gave us this book. Paul. Now, we don't know what Paul looks like, but that's the earliest image of Paul found anywhere from the 3rd century. And so, there's Paul there. Well, what was Paul? Well, it's kind of a mistake to think that... um, Some people say, oh, it's Saul, and then he turned to be Paul after he got saved. Actually, he had two names. Some of you, uh, you know, you study and you read your history, and you're familiar with Josephus. His name was really Joseph ben Matthieu, Joseph the son of Matthew. And his Latin name was Titus Flavius Josephus. In the same manner, Saul has probably got this kind of a name, Saul ben what's it? We don't know his father's name. And if you ever find that, like an archaeological dig, you find that statue, you'll probably get a million bucks. Saul ben something, or... Uh, blank, blank Paulus, because uh, that's his cognomen, we don't know the praenomen, and the nomen gentile. So anyway, that's Paul. So um, he's normally known as Saul ha-Tarsa, Tarsi, Saul of Tarsus. That's because he's from Tarsus, It's a little town here, if I can find my light. Uh, it's not a little town, it's a big city. This is, this is the, the land of Israel, you know, the holy land, Rome, where Paul's headed, Athens, Corinth, we'll mention that later. Tarsus is a city in the mountains here, which is now Turkey. Uh, Big trading city, university city, affluent, that sort of thing. And that kind of explains a little bit about Paul's life. Paul was classically educated. He quotes Menander and Epimenides and Aratus in the New Testament. It wasn't like he was some, you know, clod-kicking Bible thumper. No, he was classically educated, formally educated uh, from a semi-affluent family. He also learned to trade. That's a good idea for you millennials, you know. Uh, He also... He had the degree, but he also knew how to work with leather and canvas and make tents and equipment. So he did those things. He was a Roman citizen by birth. Now, that is a big, big deal. Because remember, in the book of Acts, uh, he had been arrested. They were going to haul him out and whip him to death. And he says, are you going to do this to a Roman citizen? And and the, the jailer, the centurion there, almost wet himself because he realized that if he did that, he could end up executed. And, and the jailer says man, I bought my citizenship with a great price. And Paul says, yes, but I was freeborn. And that is like, oh, I am not worthy. He was freeborn. So that means he was quite some person. But interestingly, he was also a Jew. He was Jewish. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews from the tribe of Benjamin. Probably that's why he has the name Saul. He was uh, a Pharisee, educated, studied under Gamaliel. And because of that, his life was contemporary with Jesus of Nazareth himself. He certainly did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the sent one, the son of God, and he was a persecutor of Christians. He was there in Acts 8 when Stephen was stoned to death, just beaten to death. And Paul was actually Saul was actually on his way to Damascus to capture some more Christians, Jews and put them in jail, when he was transformed by Christ himself. The vision on that Damascus road and where he came to realize that Jesus of Nazareth was truly Yeshua HaMashiach. Jesus, the Messiah, the sent one, the holy one from God, who came to deliver not just the Jews, but the world from their sin. So, well, the book was written probably about this time, uh, 56, 57, during Paul. Remember, he became a big missionary, three missionary journeys, was captured, taken to Rome, released, probably a fourth missionary journey, and then executed. This was written during this third missionary journey from Corinth on his third visit there. You can check this stuff out with me later if it's really, really important to you. So, another thing about this book is this letter. Paul wrote most of the letters in the New Testament. That's what they were, these epistles. He wrote to churches he had established or been a part of, like in Ephesus, Ephesians, Philippians. Paul was writing to a church he did not establish and, and to people he did not know. Hence, a lot of these greetings in chapter uh, 1 and the 16th chapter. And many people call it this. Paul's, Paul was setting down this letter. It's important that you understand this as we go through all 16 chapters. Not today, but 16 chapters. Uh, that Paul was setting forth what was the most important truths... So some people call this the gospel, you know, the gospel according to Luke, the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of Mark, the gospel according to Paul. So that's why this is such an important book. We're going to look at big chunks of it and kind of bite it off, all right? And uh, hopefully not keep you too long. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. Uh, um, This first section, what to say? Well, for years, people have tried to drive this wedge between Paul and Jesus, well, Jesus did one thing and Paul kind of invented Christianity. One of the things, though, Paul didn't do is he really didn't talk about the deity of Christ. I have a hard time understanding it from this passage. Look, he says, the gospel of God, which, which he promised beforehand in his prophets and the holy scriptures, that's the Jewish holy scriptures, the Tanakh, the law, the writings, and the prophets. Look at this, his son of the seed of David, according to the flesh. The one declared the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. Wh- whom He was raised from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. I don't think you can get much clearer than that as far as a passage. Uh, Paul goes on to say concerning uh, the Romans, he says, um, Your faith is proclaimed in all the world, and I long to come to see you so that I could impart some spiritual gift to you and you to me. Important to realize this practically for our era, that we put Tim and others up in the pulpit, the elders, the, the pastors, and they're supposed to encourage us. Hey, it's our job to encourage them as well. He says that I should be encouraged with you, that he wants to strengthen them, but also that Paul himself would be encouraged. Let's remember that as we, you know, deal with our leaders, that they're human too. He says, I don't want you to uh, be unaware of the fact that I've tried to come before and I've been held back, but I want to come because... I am ready to preach the gospel to all of you that are in Rome. So he's ready to do that. For he's not ashamed of this gospel. It is the power of God to salvation. This gospel, the good news, the good news that Jesus of Nazareth was truly the sent one of God, the Messiah, and that his death on the cross provided us a way to God through the forgiveness that that death brought to us. That I'm not ashamed of that. To the Jew first. And to the Greek, historically. For in that, a righteousness is revealed the, uh, from faith to faith that just shall live by faith. Now, I've mentioned the gospel, the good news, quite a bit. Um, now we're just going to enter a section that I'd call <coughs> sort of the bad spoil, uh, Because we're going to get some bad news here. Uh, and I'll make some comments on this later, why this is so. But you'll see the last part of chapter 1, which we'll cover... All of chapter 2 and the first part of chapter 3 is kind of like on the bummer side of things. You'll see as we read through it. So hold your fire as my wife helps me through. I'll put the first light up, okay? Let me read. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold down the truth by unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifested in them. For God has made it manifest to them. For the invisible things of him since the creation. Dear. Next slide. Oh, it's there. (laughs) How about that? For the invisible things of him since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen, being understood by what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Because knowing God, they did not glorify him as God, neither did they give thanks, but they were futile in their reasoning and their senseless heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of an incorruptible God for an image in the form of a corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And so God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts unto uncleanness so that their bodies should be... Dishonored by them, for they exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature instead of the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is against nature. And in the same way also, the men abandoning their natural function of the woman and burning in the lust towards their lust towards one another, male with male, committing the shameful deed and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And just as they refused to have God in knowledge any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do the things that are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents without understanding, without trustworthiness, without natural love, without mercy, while knowing the ordinance of God that the one practicing such things are worthy of death, not only do they do the same things, but give hearty approval to those that practice them. And I would add, ouch. I'm going to let that sink in for a minute. Why all of this? Does God really hate us that much? (laughs) Are we really that evil? Well, there's a reason for this. Well, two parts of the same reason, maybe. In this portion of Romans, and I'll show you some structure next week. In this portion of Romans, in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, Paul is showing us our need for a Savior. You know, like when you chip a tooth on something, and, and it doesn't hurt. And so you let it go for days and weeks, and you don't do anything about it. If you chip that tooth, and all of a sudden, hellfire and damnation comes into your incisor or molar, and you feel this pain, you notice that need, and you'll get to the dentist, won't you? Paul is here to show us our need of a Savior, and with that, our condition, our condition. That our condition is sin, as he'll talk about in Romans chapter 3. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have missed God's mark and fallen short of his glory. So let's look back at some of these scriptures and just take a few chunks, okay? This wrath of God is revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness. What are the main portions here? That which is known to God is manifested in us. Us, for God, has manifested, made it manifest. He's declared it to us, the invisible things of him. Let's look at the, um, yeah, let's go through this part. For the invisible things of him, since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen. And they're understood by what has been made. We have no excuse. So the big ports I would see here is men who hold down the truth in unrighteousness. It's like they put it in a box, the truth, and they put a lid on that box, and they sit on that box, and the truth keeps trying to bounce out, and, but it's being held in. That's the picture. Because that which may be made known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it to them. We are without excuse, because you can't get around this fact through any philosophy or any logic or any so-called sophist arguments. What is known of God? His eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen who God is and what he's like so that we're without excuse. Now, just on Monday, I still look at AOL News, although, you know, they come up with these pages and you look at stuff and then, you know, and there's articles there and half of them are porn, so you don't have to look at them. Uh, and the others, you go on and try to get to a click. And one came up and I tried to uh, screen save it and it was off in a flash. So I got a cached page. And this is what came up. This was, I found it on Wednesday. World-changing book claims to dismantle the theory of evolution. It's by uh, not a Christian, as far as I know, Douglas Axe, uh, engineer turned biologist, who says here are the reason, the fundamental parts, the problems with evolution. More often than not, the the reaction to of our culture is this. If you've ever seen Ben Stein's documentary, it's a hoot. Ben Stein, again, as far as I know, is not a believer in Jesus, the Messiah, is Jewish. But the point of his documentary is this, is that anyone that suggests the slightest hint that there may be a creation, there may be a sense of design as a possibility, maybe anybody that comes up with that is shunned by the scientific world, ridiculed, loses their job in many instances, denied tenure, and so forth. Because we have people like the apostle of evolution, uh, Richard Dawkins, who is uh, an ardent atheist as well and makes that clear. He says, we talk about world, the world, you know, it's evolution and there's no part in God. Don't give me this God and evolution put together garbage. I don't, that's not, that's rubbish. And he says, what we have to do is be lucky. We've got to be lucky. But only a certain amount of luck. We've got to have luck that's like a hundred billion, billion to one. That's good. Be lucky, but not too lucky. And like 100 billion, billion to one, hope I've done the maths right, you mathites. Okay, 100 billion, billion to one, I believe is 10 to the 22nd power. And that's, you know, that's, that's pretty big odds. Well, his, his uh, um, person that he admires a lot, Francis Crick, who won the Nobel Prize, says this, the pure luck assembly of a polypeptide chain of one of rather modest length is 10 to the 260th power. I have no idea what that is. Only the federal government knows things because they use numbers like that. You know, Uh, just keep adding it to your tax debt. To explain the immensity of this luck, Crick pointed out that all the atoms in the visible universe come to 10 to the 80th power, which would be 100 billion, 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 billion. So how can they say? But the thing is, they've clearly seen and understood that which has been made and are without excuse. But they put the truth in a box and held it down. And that, you know, we didn't move this. You can see this here. This is one of the real hoots at the end of the... Stein, he's funny, but he didn't go too far in this because he thought Dawkins would storm out or whatever. He finally gets Dawkins to admit that if there is a designer, maybe there is, but it's got to be an alien, not God. So in other words, anything can be... we We can explain life itself and the meaning of life and the purpose of life and the origin of life and the destiny of life through any other means, maybe throw cards on the floor, but not God. God's off the table. And because of that, Romans says, they didn't know him, and they didn't give thanks. They were futile in their reasoning. Their senseless heart was darkened, professing themselves wise. They became fools. Now, the next portion of this may get a bit... Now, let me put it up first, because I'm going to show you ahead in the remainder of chapter 1 what he does. Paul says, so God gave them over. God gave them over to the desires of their hearts unto uncleanness. God gave them over to dishonorable passions. God gave them over to a depraved mind. This could get a little R-rated here. So, children, make sure you explain this to your parents when they get home. (laughs) Okay? Yeah, you enough said. God gave them over to the desires of their hearts. Uh, let's see. Oh, yeah, that's what I want to talk about. Back to the Dawkins thing and then we'll move on. The whole idea of foundation. When you have a foundation of a building, okay, you want to put up a house or a commercial building, whatever, and they draw out where it's supposed to be. They put out the lines, but some joker comes out in the middle of the night, and he moves a couple of lines here, cords, all this, and so. So the guys come in to dig in the footer and pour the footer, and so they're going to do that, and so they, and they get it done, and they say, hmm, this is out of whack. Ah, heck with it, not my problem. So they all get in the Toyota pickup and drive off. Okay? So then the, uh, the framers come in, you know, to throw up the walls, to put up the walls. So they come in, and, and they're putting up the walls. And, then, and so they all get done and say, hmm, this isn't right. This is kind of out of rack here and whack. Eh, not my problem. So they get in the toilet to pick up and drive off, and then the roofers come in. And so they get the, you know, and, the, and they're putting the roof on. And they put the roof on, and they say, the whole edifice, it's all wrong. That's because it has to do with the foundation. Because if you don't have God there, his eternal power and his, and his divine nature, his Godhead, as your basis, it's all going to be messed up. You're going to end up with stuff like this. You know? And, and, and this one, this has got to be in Eastern Europe. The only way this could happen. See? And, and one of my favorites, this, uh, this is from China, sorry. But um, that's one clearly where the foundation was wrong. At least the building held together when it tipped over. So... Anyway, the foundation. God gave them over to dishonorable passions. Women exchanging their natural function against that which is in nature. All right? Let's just, let's just go on through here, and I'll show you the, the natural function. Natural is natural. Function is sexual function. of Sexual intercourse. That's what it means. Okay? It's very clear. All righty? The natural function of sexual intercourse. God is not against sex. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Marriage is honorable and coitus undefiled. Yes, Sheldon Cooper's favorite word. Okay? (laughs) You can see how many people watch that show. Uh, Coitus is undefiled. That's what it says. But adulterers... That's a married person that has sexual intercourse with someone other than their spouse. And fornicators, I don't know any other word to use because we ain't got one. So fornicators, that's a person that sleeps around and has sexual intercourse with opposite sex, same sex, or any combination. Adulterers and fornicators, God will judge. But is he against sex? Yet. He's not. That's what he's against. Therefore, you can see it's appropriate to have sex within marriage for procreation and for pleasure. It's not just to, it's not just to make babies. Some of you don't even know what making whoopee is. It's an old song. Uh, <laughs> but I think it's clear from Song of Solomon and other texts in Scripture, God expects us and doesn't object to having pleasure. That's what the natural function of sex is. But they've traded that for that which is against nature. I'm not going to elaborate, guys. Uh, how, how much more clear can that be? For that which is against nature, in the same fashion, men exchange and being burning with their passions, male with male. <clears throat> you know, there's several words <clears throat> in the original for man. One is this bog standard, anthropos, like anthropology and all that sort of stuff for man, mankind. There's an air. And then there's this one that definitely has to do with being male male with male engaging in things that are not permitted as it says in the scripture shameful deed and receiving in themselves the due penalty of error now this is like i said this is the bad spell the bad news for a bit um unlike some bible commentators that live at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue who says this is just an obscure passage in Romans, and you can look at the quote. You can find it. I don't think this is that obscure, and I don't think it's that unclear. I think it's fairly clear of what God expects in a sexual relationship. And this is not something new that Paul's invented, but it's come through the Tanakh, the, the holy scriptures of the Hebrews. Throughout scripture, you can see a unity in this teaching, okay? That's the male with male thing. And just as they refused to have God and any, uh, any lo- knowledge of God, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do the things which are not proper. Just so you know that's not just, uh, you know, uh, like an obsession with sex or something. Look at all these. And we read the list, you know. Uh, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, gossips. That's, yeah, that's on the list too, guys. Gossips, slanderers, arrogant. My favorite. Disobedient to parents. I like that one, you know? So, those are the things that God considers depraved. We have a problem with depraved because we watch the shining or, you know, things like that. The word depraved, you can talk about theology like the de, uh, depravity of man or something. The word depraved is just this there's a word, dokimosi, which means to be tested and approved, you know? Like, I worked in a machine shop for many years and you heat treat stuff and you test it. Is it strong enough? Does it pass the test? You put it in there and the sucker snaps in half. It's not. It's adokimos. You put an A in front of stuff in Greek, like moral, amoral, tonal, atonal. That's what it means. It's tested and failed. That's the kind of mind that our world in its nature has. Why? Because we knew God and we saw God and we said, our world said, we reject that. We're going to put it in the box, put the lid on and hold it down. And this is why God has given us over to a depraved mind. And these, these things at the very end of chapter 1, without understanding all these things, not only do we do them, we up, give hearty approval to the others that are also practicing them. Now, that's the end of chapter 1. First, Paul talks about the entire world and what bad shape we're in. Chapter 2, we'll just take the first chunk of it. In chapter 2, he's going to focus in on several groups. One is, the first one is pe- the conscience of mankind, people with conscience. And we'll just be here a few minutes. And then talk about, as Paul calls it, the Jew, because he's a Jew, the terminology he used, and into chapter 3, and then conclude in chapter 3, you'll see next week. Okay? So, uh, let's do some reading on chapter 2, and we'll, we'll be done. Therefore... You have no, let me see, a conscience, yeah. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, judges, practices the same thing. And we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. But do you reckon this, O man who passes judgment and on those who practice such things um, and does the same things yourself, that you should escape the judgment of God? Are you scornful of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, ignorant that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with the hardness and, uh, of your hardness and unrepented heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of righteousness of judgment of God, who will give to each person according to his deeds. To the ones who, with reference to good works, seek glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and disobey the truth, but obey in righteousness wrath and rage, tribulation and calamity upon every soul of man doing evil, of the Jew first and also the Greek. For there is no respecter of persons with God. For as many who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And as many who have sinned in the law, by the law will be judged. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but also the doers of the law will be justified. For when the nations who do not have the law do by nature things of the law, these ones, not having the law, are a law unto themselves. The very ones showing the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts with one another, accusing or excusing in a day when God will judge the secrets of men according to my gospel through Christ Jesus. Now, um, looking at this real quick, just a little bit, few minutes. This is all about the conscience. Every one of us has one. I might as well put this last light up here, okay? Um, some of our consciences are cleared. Some of us have a guilty conscience. Some, as Paul says in another letter, can be seared with a hot iron and you get one of these burns, you know, or a callus and you just can't feel anything. Now you might think, oh, that looks like it's teaching works for salvation because he's talking about, you know, oh, eternal. He, he's talking about the picture of if you're going to live by the law, this is what it's like. He makes it very clear in chapter 3 and the rest of the book of Romans, there's no way the law can save you. The only way to be right before God is, to by, is to, by believing that Jesus, that, that we are sinful and we, we can't get back to God, but that Jesus' death on the cross provided that perfect payment for our sins, that by belief in him, we receive that, we receive him, and we're born into his family, and we have a relationship with God forever. But if you're going to, he says, if you're going to try to work your way into heaven, this is what it's going to be like, pal. You know, go for work, work, and then you'll get your eternal life. But if you don't, and his point is, life shows you that nobody can do that. And he makes that clear in the passages to come. But he's saying all of us have a conscience. And the people that, and he's going to start directing his attention toward the Jews who had the law, the people that don't have a law, but they live. According to a law or law, they're better than you. You say you believe in this. You say you're working your way to heaven. You try to live by the law, but you don't do it. You can't do it. You refuse to do it. But the conscience will, will convict and accuse and approve. And John chapter 16 makes it very clear that the Holy Spirit uses this conscience to convict people of their sin, of the righteousness of God, that they don't have, and the judgment to come. Now, well, this will close. Why all this bad news? Well, like the slide says. This, again, is a testament. It's a, it's a statement about why we need a Savior. And I've often thought, you know, maybe sometimes you don't emphasize that enough. If, if, you, if your tooth is hurting, you go to the dentist but these unseen needs well we live here in America we're not being bombed at the current moment everything's fine my 401k is working out my job's okay stock options it's all good you know but we need this Savior Jesus and secondly I just wanted to point out the gospel made its entrance into a world that was sinful it still is and will be sinful to the end of time God's time we look at how terrible the world is in our recent, maybe recent, legislation and law changes and all that. Friends, the gospel came in to a, a Roman, Greco-Roman world where prostitution was legal everywhere. It was a part of the religion. Strabo, the first century historian, says there's a thousand male prostitutes in Corinth alone for the 17 temples. Male ones, men. And it was part of the religion. You pay your money, you know, you do your thing, and... You know, you get a blessing for it. Crime, lawlessness, the value of life, abortion. Well, it wasn't practiced because we, you know, women tended to die. But it, but it was totally legal for years and years and years until Constantine stopped it to expose your child, which meant you just, you have a baby, and then you go put it on a rock somewhere to die. That's what you do. Totally legal. Nothing against that. In fact, the early church, they're the people that went out and found those babies and brought them in, adopted them, and raised them. So, we're looking at how horrible our world is. The gospel, the good news of Jesus came into a world, I was going to say that it was a lot worse than ours, but nah. You know, we've always been evil since we sinned, since the sin, first sin. And that's why Jesus came. The gospel transformed people within the world of Jesus and Paul, and it does the same thing today. It still does. It's still the power of God, salvation to everyone who believes. Let's pray.